Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. My guest today is Michael Mann, a director whose filmography includes multiple masterpieces, Thief, Manhunter, Last of the Mohicans, and Heat, just to name four. He's here to talk about his latest film, Ferrari, which is, like all of Mann's films, rigorously researched, psychologically penetrating, and filled with visceral, experiential action sequences. I had a great time sitting down with Michael to hear about how he did it, and I hope you'll have a great time listening. Here's our conversation. One of the things I liked about Ferrari is that you kind of give two different experiences to the audience. There's the, for lack of a better word, you know, dramatic material with Ferrari and his wife and the love triangle, which is sort of one kind of movie. And then there's the car stuff and the racing, which it's part of the same story, but it's done in a sort of different style. And I was wondering that the whole idea of focusing on this very brief period in his life, was that something that was always part of, I know you've been working on this for like 30 years. Was that always the concept behind it or is that something that kind of evolved over the oh no it didn't evolve that was in fact that was the only reason to do it if it had been a biopic that would have spanned many years it would have been subject for a documentary and i wouldn't have been interested in it uh it was only because there is that uh historically accurate compression of all this tumultuous uh events um you know passions a son who's um it's illegitimate son Piero, who's seeking the acknowledgement of his father, the recent death of his son Dino after a long illness, the, um, the, uh, both the hostility with his wife Laura and the mutual attraction both going on at the same time, his relationship with Lena Lardy, and then the company is going broke. And all that compression is three or four months, period, in kind of an operatic, emotional, passionate story. That was the reason to do it. So that was always um, kind of at the core of the idea. And that's what held me into it over the years. Not the, not the, I love Ferraris, but not because I love Ferraris. I can drive a Ferrari. I don't have to make a movie about Ferrari, right? And, um, yeah. Uh, yeah the, uh, and then you also mentioned something about the, that there's two different uh, kinds of narratives in the film. And there actually are a uh, it's it's the code it's the conjunction of those, which is which was also fascinating to me because, and it's by very much by design, meaning that the, the that the propulsive, emotional engagement is the dramatic story of what's happening with these people, and the resolution of that is, for the most part, played out by what by the racing story what's happening in the racing when enzo gambles he gambles the future of many things all at the same time on the outcome of the mia media which is a thousand mile race across open roads in italy through towns through little you know the mountains uh, and uh obviously perilous and dangerous and uh, and so the it's quite intentional that i wanted to have one kind of filmmaking and one kind of storytelling for the, the the very powerful emotional dramas between Enzo and Laura, for example, and her discovery that he's had another marriage, he has another home that all the Bolden knew about, but she didn't. Um, in, 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 uh, 
very much as a dialogue movie rooted in the culture and look and feel of Modena in Northern Italy in 1957. The resolution in the, in the racing, uh, you know, uh, kind of in, in, inspired me to ask myself the question an actor asked himself in the scene, what's my action? Meaning, how do I want that to impact on audience? And I want it to be the exact counterpoint. I want it to be savage, red primary reds, these incredibly powerful cars that nevertheless don't have current technology for braking or safety. And, and for you to experience not looking at a car, meaning of being a removed observer of perhaps a beautiful shot with a long lens, but in fact being in the driver's seat where your experience, where I can, as much as I can do this, impact you with the experience of being there, which in a word is the intense agitation of, of, the, uh, you know, of the moment. Yeah, I mean, I got a real sense of terror in those driving sequences, and it didn't seem to me like you were doing any of the usual tricks that filmmakers do to make things seem fast with lenses or anything like it. looked like those cars were really flying. Um, we, we, we built all those replicas from scratch, and I uh, was saying we, Neil Layton, and then, and then uh, 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 Campana, which is a company in, uh, in Modena, run by Rita Campana. And um, uh, we built those from scratch, and they were fast. They had to go 140 miles an hour, 150, had to be reliable, and had to be safe. And, um, and they're, they're based on, we started with 3D LiDAR scans of actual cars, the, the existing versions of those cars that are around are extremely valuable. The Tarufi car sold for 70 million, at Pebble Beach in 2017, so they're uh, and they're also fragile. We actually had one. Uh, one is somebody in Germany owned it on the set for a while. And then the the exception to that, by the way, is the is is the Maserati 250F, the single seater that Bayrod drives in the opening sequence in a cut with the church. That car is owned by that's an actual car is owned by Nick Mason, the Pink Floyd drummer, and he races it in historical races, so the cars kept up the racing. That, that one's real. Everything else are replicas that we built. Wow. So they're, and you're saying, you know, so, so they're going, they can go 140 miles an hour. I mean, what is that, what are the challenges of actually shooting that? I mean, are you, how are you getting cameras to move with them or creating camera cars that can move along with the action? We, um, we did a lot of engineering and a lot of designing, uh, working with uh, Neil Layton and working with uh, camera systems people and with uh, Eric Messerschmidt, the director of photography, and Roberto DeAngelis, the camera operator. We came up with certain systems. Some of it is handheld. Roberto was sitting in the passenger seat on the sports racers. Others of it, what we did was um, when I built the cars, it began with this LIDAR scan, and that then became the body of the car, perfect, mathematically perfect reproduction. And if you can imagine, that went into a CAD computer program. Also in a CAD computer program, we then reverse engineered the design of the tubular chassis that the body would sit on. And then within the tubular chassis course, there's a contemporary drivetrain, which is a four-cylinder turbocharged engine. And, but into the tubular chassis, 
we built uh, hard mount points so that I could penetrate through the skin of the car and attach camera systems, tracking camera systems, to through the skin of the car to the actual chassis and hard mounts. All this required a lot of significant engineering, which is mostly Neil Layton, Neil Layton's work. Neil Layton also built the Batmobile, by the way. He's fantastic, guy. He's in the UK. And so we were able to actually have devices where a camera could run up the side of the car, pan to the car, to the right to see a neighboring car and come back around and be in a close-up on the driver of that car and be moving, and all of that could be happening while the car was going 110, 115 miles an hour. Now, I'm curious, when you talk about approaching this sort of the way an actor would approach a character, you know, I'm, have you ever raced cars yourself? And, yes. Yeah, and so what is, what is that, how does that experience inform your approach well, to the it, movie? The, the, the experience of racing, I raced in the Ferrari Challenge on and off for about six years in the late 90s into about 2004, 2005, and um, in between films. And the experience goes something like this. If it rode Atlanta, one day I did 75 laps in practice around Road Atlanta, and maybe once or twice, I put together this, there's three chicanes in a row as you approach the back straight. Maybe once or twice of the 75 laps, I did it right. <laughs> right for me, not right for a professional racer. And, um, and the experience of it, you get a, uh, as a director, an actor would get the same thing. You get a fractal of, okay, this is what, this, this is the experience. I can then expand and project and extrapolate to what if all your driving felt like this? And here's the feeling. It's kind of a, it's kind of a unifying harmonic where you, the machine, everything is one. The machine is totally, it's not a car with four wheels and you're steering it. It's something suspended on the planet Earth on four springs. And as you brake, the weight moves forward. As you accelerate, the weight moves back. And then you get more adhesion on the rear wheels. If you turn right, you know, the whole centrifugal force is taking you into different directions. So it's, it's balancing all of that in a very fluid way to get the car to perform out to the very edge of adhesion. And when that's happening the right way, you, the vehicle, you're all one. It's a unified organism. It's your perception is not where you are. Your perception is what's coming next. Your focus is 100%. You're not concerned about what's happening back in Los Angeles or the attorneys or anything else. And so that kind of a Zen feeling is maybe analogous to when you were 11 years old and had a dream of flying or something. You know, when you're a kid, you have these ideas, I'm Peter Pan, whatever. And it and it it um, it's very analogous to that. I also was probably um, it was on sports uh, sport racer motorcycles. The first was like my first love, you know, starting when I was 16. And um, you get that feeling easier on a, on a you know on a, on a production racer or something on a, on a racetrack than you do in cars. But you also get that same thing in cars. So and that's the addiction. And, um, and it's, uh, it was described by Jean Berard, who is the driver who drives the, uh, the Maserati in the intercut, seeing that intercuts with the church, uh, described by him as, as an ecstasy and a, an addictive ecstasy. And he was not a poet. I mean, he's a very blunt, spoke, famously blunt guy. And... Um, and he was angry when he was describing it that way because after he left 
the track after he broke the record. This is history, actual history. After he broke the record, he was Maserati's pulling away. He was driving, and then he stopped at that chicane at the Autodromo to watch Costalotti, who was coming back to try and regain the record. And he saw Costalotti miss a shift. If um, you came into the that chicane, that series of turns. You're, supposed to, you're in fourth gear, you downshift into third, and you use engine braking as well as your drum brakes to slow to make the third, to make the first turn, and then you go from third to second to make the second turn, and then you're through the turn, and you're... And he heard and saw uh, Beira, I mean, Beira heard and saw Costalotti miss the shift, and then hit that, those strangely concave curbs, which launched them into the air, and then he wrote a paragraph about it, and it was only about three weeks before we started shooting that I discovered this and had it translated, and, uh, and he spoke about it. This is the, he said, the stupid addiction we have to this ecstasy is how, you know, that, that causes us to risk our lives. And, um, and Nizenzo says in the second scene in the restaurant that uh, we all believe it'll never happen to us that our friends killed on Sunday, we give up racing forever, on Monday, by Thursday or Friday, we're back in the car and we're racing again the next weekend. And that's that's the nature of it. Well, again, you know, I've never seen a movie that so captures the sense of of danger. And there's a you know, this sort of catastrophic crash scene in the movie. And I was wondering what your reference points were for that. I mean, just like in terms of knowing how it was going to look, how you were going to stage it. Had you ever seen an accident like that, or or what was your re- or what did your research uncover? Well, I, I, I've seen film footage of, of horrendous crashes in the twenties and thirties, and then uh, uh, and then also at, at Le Mans in the nineteen fifties. And but the staging of it, there are many accounts of the crash that differ radically. There's one account we we read that. It was a wedding party. The priest showed up. That he was, and, and something horrible happened to the the driver. He was decapitated. That's not true. The man at the um, at the Ferrari factory in the Classique division, named Gabriella Lali, um, who we had tremendous cooperation from the factory. This is the place where they restore cars, and they have all the original blueprints, and when they don't have parts, which of course they don't have on the old, very valuable race cars, they will just make one from scratch. So it was a connecting rod or a camshaft, whatever it is, they just manufacture it. And he went to the prefecture, Widazola, the Widazola's in, and dug through the, the went into their store, dug through and found the actual uh, reports. There's been a two-year, two or three-year investigation, so it was volumes and volumes of it with all kinds of impeccable drawings. Um, the coroner's report, all this, and that's where, you know, we discovered what had actually happened to the Portago, uh, which also happens to people in airplane crashes, the way the bodies, bodies react. So what we portray is absolutely correct. Um, including hitting the mile marker. From the mile marker, the car gets airborne because it's probably estimated to be going 140 miles an hour when it got airborne and then hit a telephone pole. Then from the telephone pole, it hit a crowd of people. Now, the road is exactly as we portray. It's a straight road with a farmhouse, and then people from the neighboring farmhouses 
came out to see what happened. That we learned about in a very interesting way. We were, I went to the actual site at Wiedersolo, straight road, the farmhouse sitting back from the road a little bit, neighboring farmhouse, and we were there, and an older gentleman came out of the house and asked what we were doing in Italian, and through translators, um, we told him, and he said, oh, I was there. I said, you were there? Yeah, I was there. He said, I was, we were having our Sunday, typical Italian Sunday lunch at about 3, 4 in the afternoon, and um, the first cars were coming by through. That would have meant the fastest cars because there were only 20 minutes from the end of the race. And um, uh, neighbors started coming to the, through our field to the side of the road, and my older brother, who was, I, who was nine, ran out to the road. I was a three-year-old toddler, and I ran out too, and I wasn't as fast as he was. He got to the road, the accident happened, and his brother got killed. So he was the three-year-old. And so I was very, very you know, moved to hear that story. And so, that, so I wrote the scene uh, and portrayed exactly, exactly that. Wow. Um, how do you immerse yourself in, you know, the Italian culture and history? I mean, this movie, you know, in a way, you know, the, a compliment that I would pay you and your production designer and everybody else is that I forgot I was watching a period piece a few minutes in because I just got immersed in the drama. But obviously there's so many period details, and I've heard Italian critics comment on the authenticity of the movie. So is this a world that you've always been familiar with, or do you have to take a deep dive into it to make the movie? Uh, you always have to take a deep dive into it, and I was very complimented by the fact that both Italian uh, Italian critics writing about the movie uh, sort of felt authentic, and even more so, we showed the film to 200 uh, employees at, at the factory, the Ferrari factory, which included some executives, but also included a whole bunch of mechanics. And, um, and, and uh, you know, for me, that was the ultimate, um, that was the kind of a tense, you know, anxiety-ridden judgment that was going to, that nobody else would know about, but I certainly would have felt, you know, about it. And they, uh, they all, you know, had very, very positive reactions to it. And they were totally taken with the movie. The, um, you, I mean, to me, that's the adventure of, of um, of doing a project like this, that's that's the adventure of it. Uh, is is that yes, you have to build the whole world, um, and the the physical part is research, typical research. Uh, you know what the streets look like, what this you know what the city looked like. Modena is totally unchanged, completely unchanged, except for signage and a couple of things here and there. So. And then set deck and all that, set decoration and wardrobe and hair, period hair. You have to go back into the research and and, uh, uh, and and find all that. And it takes out working with wonderful craftsmen, all those, uh, Rini is one, and then um, Maria Yurkovich, production designer, um, uh, Massimo Perini, the costume designer. And you get yourself to that, but... Um, a more significant piece of research is completely cultural, psychological, emotional, what was period psychology, what period attitudes, uh, what was the middle class, you know, bourgeois uh, family in northern Italy, what, what are the tropes? Um, 
you know, was it accepted for the man to wander off and have mistresses and casual sexual liaisons, for example? Um, the uh, what was the attitude? What happened in a marriage that didn't work? A divorce is impossible in 1957. Um, what was the attitude towards um, authority systems? What was the authority system? And there were two halves that happened in Modena in 57. One was the Catholic Church, the other was the Italian Communist Party, both very rigid. So that means somebody like Enzo, who's a reverent, who was born a reverent, is a reverent against something, is pushing against something. That's very different than if there is no authority structure there and you're just exercising your free will and conduct yourself the way you want in the world. So it makes for a certain kind of witty, sarcastic humor and cynicism, but it's based on something. So it's all those things um, that make the emotional reaction a psychological attitude. For example, there is no psychology. Both Enzo and Lara are, are in a profound state of grief. They've lost a son a year ago, Dino, and there's nothing as unnatural as parents losing a child. And they um, are bound together by their history, um, which goes way back to the 1920s, uh, by the work they did together founding this company. At the same time, there's a hostility of Lara towards Enzo, there's, and Enzo was repelled by certain things against Lara. They were attracted to each other. Contemporaries said they were either having sex or they were fighting. So it was this, and they, that continued to the end of their life. And um, uh, so existing in these silos of grief, and you would expect some kind of connection, there is no connection. They never did connect. They never would connect. She's imprisoned in a, in a, in a culture that has her locked into the past. And her, the, the life that used to be there, that's where she, she is. She's still aggressive. She's still vivacious. But it's a... Enzo is in the present, and all he cares about, all he's, his entire orientation is only the future. People ask him, Enzo, what's your, of all the cars you built, what's your favorite one? The next. It's always the next. The next piece of technology, the next piece of engineering. And that pushed him forward into milling steel down to 50 microns in the 50s, which is unheard of, or, or having an intuitive sense about having all the parts that connected to other parts inside an engine from the same block of steel, that even though two blocks would be chemically the same, nevertheless, he had a suspicion that why not make them all from the same block because that ensures that the expansion and contraction will be the same under heat and under pressure, and you won't get a, you won't get a, a leakage. So, I mean, there's so many innovative things that he did. And... Um, so those are the those are the some of the elements that you know come together. It's more difficult when you're doing a period piece um, to understand. You know, it's one thing to understand Ali, if you like, in in '67. Um, I'm one year younger than he was. What infuriated him about the war in Vietnam on the six o'clock news infuriated me and my generation all at the same time. It's a whole different thing if you're doing Last of the Mohicans, and uh, you know how does what, what's what's courtship among the Hohikans, how do you approach a girl that you find attractive? Uh, you know, I know how you do it in high school in the late 50s and early 60s in Chicago. I do not know how you do it in the northeastern woodlands. And it turns out he just looks at her in a way that makes Madeline Stowe say, but what are you looking at, sir? I'm looking at you, you know? And so it comes from someplace. Um, 
but that's the that's the adventure of it, and, uh, and it's a great adventure. And I work with actors who want to go on that adventure. It's not really work; it's a thrill. And you know, I don't know if anybody would want to do it any other way. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of the things you're saying, I sort of intuitively felt about the characters watching the movie, even though they never verbally articulate it. And that makes me wonder, what kinds of conversation or work do you do with the actors ahead of time to put to immerse them and put them in that headspace where it's where they can sort of you know again just I don't like I don't even know how Adam Driver does what he does I just know when I look at him on screen I'm feeling those things that you're talking about he's transformative the degree of difficulty of becoming Enzo Ferrari is huge the core is there that's what I sensed the first time I talked to Adam about it that that um, you know that Enzo and Adam Driver are both men who came from a real place, um, semi-hostile environments, some adversity, and uh, live, in, live in the real world, have real world experiences, and he had a romantic, intense ambition to do something. For Adam, it was after he was in the Marines, it was go be, be an actor, actually from before the Marines, got turned down by Juilliard, went into the Marines for three years, then he came out, and then to go to Juilliard and became an actor. And for Enzo, it was the passion that we know. It'd be a race car driver, and then to run a race, you know, then run the Alpha team in the 30s. And um, so it starts there, but the, some of the, um, it, was, it comes to un- understanding, um, understanding, understanding Enzo, one of the things was to experience being a race car driver, for starters. Um, but also to um, to know Modena, this this hermetically sealed place where people do not emigrate, because the rest of the world is filled with foreigners and everything's here. So why leave? I mean, that's pretty much the attitude. Um, and the. Um, uh, the way Enzo walked, the way he, what he, what he saw, um, how how does somebody, how's a, how does a character see? How does he breathe? How does he move? I mean, all those things come from something. Enzo's, you know, defensiveness was also suspicious. He's also paranoid, and some of the expressions of it are very witty. He would say that Italy forgive Italy will forgive murderers, they'll forgive thieves. What they will never forgive is success. Um, whatever, anything good that shows up, be careful because somebody's trying to over here, trying to take it away from you. So, you know, that with, with, with Lara and working with Penelope, well, I want to go back to one of the things about, about, about Adam. The, what he does is transformational, turning himself into, into Enzo. The, the, um, um, Every gesture, he says, you know, Fuzaro, you know, the hand gestures, uh, these are studied, but they're not imitated. They're studied and incorporated. Um, and it, 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 probably the heart of it is, of Adam becoming uh, Enzo, is to understand the, uh, the, the, the romantic drive of wanting something. So Enzo's on a park bench in the rain in Turin in about 19, 1918 or 1919. He'd just been turned on for a job. His father had just died. His brother, who he was very close to, both died in the same year at the end of World War One. 
And he had, he was bereft, he had no money, and he asks himself at that moment in time, who shall I be in this world? And that's a very romantic question. It sounds ordinary to us now. It's not in 1918, 1919, in post-World War I Italy with the static class hierarchies. You don't transcend class into uh, becoming anything you can imagine. And he had decided he wanted to be an opera singer, then a sports writer, then a race car driver. That's like somebody who has nothing in 1970 saying, I want to be an astronaut and go to the moon. It's the equivalent of that. And, um, and so that aspirational um, uh, heart of Enzo, well, behind a facade of generated mystique, the sunglasses, a certain stoic presentation, but beneath that beats this a very romantic um, uh, set of notions. With, with Lara and working with Penelope, it's a variety of things. It's spending time with Lara's doctor who is still alive and, and, and understanding that in her isolation and separation from Enzo, still Enzo and she are, extend, Enzo and her are, ex, are exchanging uh, romantic letters. And we have some of the letters. It's walking into the, uh, the bedroom that Lara spent the last year and a half of her life in, in two rooms, that bedroom and the restroom next to it. And there was a fabric wallpaper and curtains, all the same pattern, all of everything. It took Penelope and my breaths away because there was something crazy about that pattern. We duplicate it in the film, and it's almost like it symbolized to her a vivacity that was there within her in the 1920s that was still... You know, the ember of it has still existed inside of her, and it told us a lot about her. Um, the, um, the, uh, the primitive certainty with which Lara, uh, when she believed something, it was absolutely true. There was no negotiation. And, uh, you know, it was Enzo's fault that Dino died because if he wasn't distracted because he had another wife and a Coppolotti, a second driver, he would have paid more attention. So... There was, um, um, you know, what music did were they listening to? Um, was it opera? Was it popular music at the time? So there's a lot of different touchstones that are particular to the, that character that uh, myself and an actor or an actress, you know, will work with, um, and you get very close when you're when you're talking about it. There's a uh, the um, one thing that was striking was the um, was the way they were divergent from each other. Uh, all the things that were oppositional within the two of them, uh, which made attention of both being attracted to and repelled by the other, and and without that ever resolving. Which is the way things work in life, I think, by the way. I mean, in contradictions resolve in movies. They don't resolve in real life. You go to the grave with the same contradictions. You know? So, I don't know. Yeah, well, when you're actually... That's a long answer. I don't know. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, great. I mean, when you're on set with Adam Driver and, and Penelope and you're you know, working on some of these really searing emotional scenes, and I'm just curious, you know, are you the kind of director, do you come in with a preconceived notion of where you're going to put the camera, what the blocking is going to be, or is it more a case of 
seeing what they do, responding to that, no, and back and forth. No, I have a. I, I come into every scene with with a with a very uh, rock solid sense of here is what the scene is supposed to yield. This is how the scene is supposed to impact audience at the second to last scene in Act Two, setting up the final scene in Act Two. Let's say, and. Um, Revealing that Lara in the bank, for example, discovers Costal Vetro and hides that from the bank manager, walks outside the door, has a certain look on her face, gets in the car and says to the driver, Costal Vetro, and he has a sh- he's shocked. So all of those, her attitudes towards the banker, the banker having slipped up and mentioned Costal Vetro, Lara picking up on it, hiding that she hasn't picked up on it, writing down 132, and that she's going, and we fear that she's on the voyage of discovery to, uh, that will reveal that Enzo has a whole second life and a whole second family that she didn't know about. And meanwhile, that intercuts with the uh, uh, Enzo, the impresario, generating publicity about how the factory will do in the Mia Media, because that's what he has to do to, for the factory survival. And so there's a certain counterpoint. So this is all quite um, designed and architected. Now, so I know what my action is, what I want the scene to do, and I know what Lara's action is in, in the scene, to accidentally discover Castle Vetro and hide the fact that she doesn't. And I have an idea of the blocking um, because I want those, I want, in that scene, the almost monochromatic black, green, and white of the marble in the bank, that's why it's black, green, and white, because I want it cold, okay, and uh, not the earthen ochres and reds and oranges you see elsewhere. And, um, and I know I want static, so, but then, we, then we'll run, run the scene, and then I'll adjust and things happen, and there's an improvisation, and we change things around. The bottom line yield of the scene doesn't change. That's in the script, and that's been broken down by me and discussed with the actors. So how it's going to impact you is engraved in stone. How I get there is subject to modification. Perfect. Well, I can talk to you all day, but I think I'm over my time. But thanks so much for doing this, Michael. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. 